Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Um, interesting weekend in, in, in our city, in our province. And it's bizarre what a, what a national story this is now, that there's so many different news agencies, even BNN, out of the corner of my eye, the business news network, is... Um, Picking up on the story about this call for Rachel Notley and the Alberta NDP to distance themselves from their from their federal counterparts. And we heard this opportunity pass yesterday. Rachel Notley addressed the media. You heard it here on News Talk 770. And it was an opportunity for her to say, guys, don't worry. We're not going to crazy town with the rest of the NDP. Which is ultimately what the NDP decided over the weekend in Edmonton. We're buying a ticket. I'm going to do this. All. I'm going to go all the way here. <clears throat> okay. We're buying our tickets all aboard the train to crazy town. Choo-choo. And Rachel sort of said, we're not getting on that train. The crazy train, basically. I, I. Yeah, well, and, and we talked about it yesterday with Jen Gerson. Uh, this, this came to the floor, and there were those within the NDP who were fighting hard to prevent the Leap Manifesto from coming to the floor, and that included the Alberta delegates. I mean, you got someone like Gil McGowan with the Alberta Federation of Labor, who's a pretty hardcore left winger, uh, but was pretty furious that the Leap Manifesto uh, business uh, made it as far as it did. So the NDP is going to spend two years talking about it, and maybe that, that, for all intents and purposes, buries it. Maybe two years from now, it, it'll all be dead, or maybe two years from now, we'll have Avi Lewis as leader of the federal NDP, and this will be official policy. We just don't know. And so there was a real need, I think, for Rachel Notley to get ahead of this and make it clear that under no circumstances are they going to go along with this. Because people are rightly pointing out that the constitution of the NDP essentially binds the provincial parties to the federal policy. So if this gets adopted as policy federally, what does it mean for the Alberta NDP? All right, let's play back a little bit of what uh, she said yesterday and try and answer some of these questions and, and maybe predict the future somewhat as well. Uh, but we'll start with uh, the, the basically the minute-long address that she gave. She called a, a media opportunity at 12.45 yesterday to speak essentially for a minute and then face any questions. I'd just like to make a brief statement about uh, this weekend's federal NDP convention before we start with her Q's and A's. First, let me wish Tom O'Care all the best. He's worked his heart out as our federal leader. He leaves the federal party with a stronger base than the Liberals had even before the last election. Obviously, delegates to that convention passionately debated a number of issues, including a proposal that New Democrats discuss, a so-called manifesto, drafted by a group of individuals who are members of different parties and no parties. To be clear, the government of Alberta repudiates the sections of that document that address energy infrastructure. These ideas will never form any part of our policy. They are naive, they are ill-informed, and they are tone deaf. We need to be leaders on the climate change file, and we need to build a sustainable energy economy. And we will do that on the basis of the concrete plans that we are putting before the people of Alberta this week and in the months to come. 
So I'm happy to take your All right, so that's Rachel Notley. That was the extent of her speech. Her speech was almost as long, by the way, as the Leap Manifesto itself. (laughs) You know, and uh, look, she's had plenty of time to read it, by the way. But uh, okay, so she's read parts of it. She's decided those are naive and ill-informed. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of people uh, around her seem to think that this is great. I mean, QP is an official endorsing organization uh, of the Leap Manifesto. Her husband works for QP. Uh, Public Interest Alberta is an official endorser of the Leap Manifesto. The NDP government went out and lured away the founder of Public Interest Alberta uh, to come be a chief of staff. Uh, to uh, Well, it started off with the health minister, now with the human services minister. So uh, she certainly had all kinds of relationships and partnerships with some of the groups that seem to think the Leap Manifesto is just terrific. And she's just realizing that now that maybe it's not. So I, I think that, that the premier is downplaying the danger here because, look, I mean, there, there's, two, there's two minds on this matter. One is that the NDP, they just sealed their fate. They were a political contender on the federal scene. They, they had some legitimacy as a socialist party in this country that could garner votes and that could, you know, maybe come up with some policy ideas that might eventually uh, entice people to give them a crack at being government. But they sewered all of that, any hope of that in this convention over the weekend by saying, hey, yeah, we'll go down this leap manifesto road, which is I've been saying it's crazy. Look, if you want me to get off the rhetoric, I'll just tell you what it is. It's impractical. It's, and it's probably and it's detrimental too to human progress, which is to say that like if you enjoy not freezing to death, if you enjoy uh, 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 building a more progressive lifestyle where more people have more opportunities for things, this elite manifesto is not something you want anything to do with. Pragmatically speaking, right. however, the the premier only said, uh, yeah, the document is bad, but uh, uh, but look, the, the party's still good. And, and, and there's nothing to suggest, by the way, that the party is even going to adopt any of these suggestions in the Leap Manifesto as policy. So don't even worry about it. We're just going to talk about it. I'll tell everyone what a bad idea it is, and we'll move on to our good ideas. That seems to be the, the confident stance the Premier's taking. Right. You know, this may end up working in her favor. Uh, right. There, there's still the possibility, even though it seemed like a bad weekend for her, if, if she can be seen as now the face of the moderate left, that there's a war going on in the left and you got Avi Lewis and Naomi Klein and Stephen Lewis on one side and Rachel Notley on the other. Being seen as as representing that side of that debate is probably going to play well in Alberta. Uh, it's just the pro- the question is how much. Does that stuff come come home to roost for her? How closely surrounded is she by by people who buy into this kind of ideology? That's where it could get awkward for her. But I, I think the notion that she's going to be the one to fight for a, a pragmatic approach, she's going to be the one to fight against the far left on pipelines, I, I don't think she minds that politically. If she can frame it that way, those are not bad optics to have in Alberta. The, uh, the idea that, um, that there needs to be a divorce between the provincial NDP and the federal NDP, uh, she addressed that yesterday. You know, it is uh, actually not uncommon for provincial parties to disagree with their federal parties in all parties. It's also not uncommon for NDP governments to disagree with the federal NDP. We disagree on this issue. Um, but to be clear, this document has not been adopted it's simply going to be discussed, and we will engage in that discussion, and we will make darn sure that the points that I made at convention um, are heard from Nanaimo to Cape Breton and everywhere in between. All right. As though Cape Breton is the edge of Canada, which our, our resident Newfoundlander pointed out yesterday. 
Um, so let's get into some of the questions here, because the questions are quite telling. And the media, um, the, the reporters that were on the scene for this yesterday, um, I, I don't think that they're willing to just accept, okay, you know, this, this elite manifesto is much ado about nothing. It is definitely something. They canned the leader and asked him to stick around for two years while we all read through this website together, basically. So here's one question. How much, how damaging is having a document like that out there? Just the perception that this is what the NDP believes. Well, you know, I think the key is that uh, that uh, we are a party that have discussions. It's very clear, I think, it should be very clear if it wasn't before, what the position is of our government uh, and of the Alberta section and the, and the, and the uh, many of the Alberta delegates, the vast majority of the Alberta delegates. So I think, quite frankly, it's an opportunity for me to reinforce to Albertans that I support the energy uh, economy that we have here, I understand the important linkage between that uh, uh, industry doing well and family supporting jobs. We, of course, as we've also talked about before, are very committed to diversification and we are committed to our climate change plan and we are committed to enhancing renewable energy opportunities here in Alberta. These are all important objectives that we need to to meet in order to reposition ourselves economically and ensure that we're we're well positioned going into the next uh, 50 years and also to do our part on climate change. So we will do all those things but we will do so collaboratively understanding that we can be a progressive energy producer in this province and support the people who work in that industry and make that transition in a in a in a just way over the time that it takes uh, to ensure that we maintain economic prosperity in this province. Okay, not a great answer to that question. Kind of a catch-all, right? Well, it's funny because I mean it kind of illustrates the NDP's own path because uh, it says right there in the Leap Manifesto that we need uh, much higher oil royalties. That's one of the ways they're going to pay for all the stuff they think that government needs to be doing. Well, you know, that, that sounds just like the Alberta NDP once sounded when they talked about how, you know, we're not getting our fair share. Once they became government and, and the realities of governing set in, and all of a sudden they conveniently realized, oh, well, you know, maybe royalties don't need to be raised. But it's, again, I mean, it, it shows that, the, that evolution on their part. And, and hopefully that, that's true and that's genuine and that's going to continue. I mean, Rachel Notley has certainly pandered to the anti-pipeline crowd. It's, it was easy for her to get on the Energy East bandwagon, but that came after she opposed Northern Gateway and opposed Keystone XL. So, you know, she can uh, cheerlead pipelines now, and that's, again, convenient for her. But, again, we, we can look at, at her own past and positions she herself has taken. Now, even still, the question about how dangerous is just the existence of this document and its uh, adoption by the NDP uh, as something that, you know, this is what they think, uh, that is dangerous. And it's probably going to cost the NDP dearly because there are going to have to be a lot of people who say, well, no, we can't go that far. I mean, socialism is something that, that, that many Canadians value, but to an extent. Does anybody really want to seal the borders? Do you really want to seal the borders and not do any international trade whatsoever? Because the Elite Manifesto is, is quite clear on that. We should be able to sustain this country from within the borders. That's going to be tough. Yeah, they want uh, to to end private ownership of resources, or they want uh, democratic community organizations to to be in charge of of those natural resources. They they want to, you know, keep the oil in the ground, uh, no more pipelines. But you're right; it goes much further than that. They they want to uh, buy into this this whole notion of 
buying and eating local, which is trendy, but just, just take it all the way to the extreme where we're going to pull out of trade deals. We're just going to grow our own food and then be entirely self-sustaining. It's just, it's, it is naive and irrational. I mean, you know, the Rachel Nolly that spoke yesterday and said those things, I certainly agree with. Uh, one more clip or should we go to a commercial break here? Let's do one. Yeah, one more, then we'll take The best is yet to come, my friends, by the oh, way. Oh, yes. But uh, here's Rachel Notley reminding you that the Leap Manifesto was not passed. Whatever that means. It was a convention. To be clear, the document that everyone is referring to was not passed and was not adopted. It forms the basis for conversations. So uh, I think we're going just a little bit farther down the road than we need to in terms of the characterization of what happened there. I don't agree with several provisions within that document. And I've been very clear about that. And many, many New Democrats do not agree. And many other New Democrats still need to know more about the issue. So I wouldn't characterize it that way. And more importantly, it's not about how I feel. It's about the commitment that I have made and will continue to make to all Albertans, which is simply this. The government that they elected will support them on the basis of the principles that I've outlined, including support for progressive, sustainable, uh, non non-renewable energy industry that can compete on an international level in a way that builds economy and jobs, not only here in Alberta, but across the country. By the way, she's being disingenuous. If it was no big deal for it to come to the floor, then why did they fight so hard against it? They fought tooth and nail to prevent it from coming to the floor. So the fact that it did is significant, and, and she shouldn't pretend that it's not. Not as though she got up there on, on Saturday and said, hey, you know what, we could spend two years talking about this. That's fine. I don't mind that. That's no big deal. That's not how it went down. So let's not sugarcoat this. All right, let's take a quick pause here and come back. Like we said, the best is yet to come. And uh, But the answer she gives to Jason Markusoff of McLean's is, uh, I, I dare say, unforgivable, uh, given the fact that she called this press conference herself. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Kincaid and Breckenridge, New Sox 770, talking about the albatross that the NDP hung around Rachel Notley's uh, neck over the weekend, something known as the Leap Manifesto. Uh, Rachel Notley trying to distance herself from that. And, and she was oddly specific yesterday, saying that they repudiate the parts of the Leap Manifesto that deal with the energy sector. Instead of just saying this whole document is crap, she said, I repudiate those parts that deal with energy. Which, again, as I say, it seemed very... Oddly specific. Are you saying that, that if you were present, you got to quiz her, you might have said, what do you think of the rest of the document? <laughs> well, I think it's kind of <laughs> awkward because you could go through where it says, for example, higher income taxes on corporations and wealthy people, a progressive carbon tax. And she's done those things. Cuts to military spending. She did that too, right? <laughs> oh, wait a sec. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is Jason Marcus from McLean's, the question that he asked. You were, when you were uh, criticizing the leave, you were particular to criticize its talk about infrastructure projects, pipelines, basically. Um, in the line right before that, they talk about that it's feasible for Canada to get 100% of its electricity from renewable resources within two decades. And by 2050, we could have a 100% clean economy. Um, is that stuff you support then? Uh Honestly, uh, Jason, I haven't read the document in its fulsome. What? Uh, in, in, but you its call complete it naive, thing. and you're being quite because the pieces of it, of it pieces of it that, uh, that. Okay, so here's the thing: if you've read pieces of the 1,306 word leap manifesto, you might as well just spent the the remaining four <laughs> minutes that you had 
on the rest of it. Is this Rachel Notley's new thing? Is she reviewing things that she hasn't read? Thank you for tuning in to Rachel Notley Reviews Classic Literature. Today's book, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. I haven't read the document in its fulsome uh, pieces of it that, uh, that uh, I paid attention to are profoundly naive and uh, thoughtless. And, uh, and uh, um, This has been Rachel Notley Reviews Classic Literature. It's not exactly. That's a great new saying. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to stick. Like a weekly thing, maybe? But let, let, I'm dead serious, but the Leap Manifesto, for those of you who think it's some sort of like leather-bound book that was uncovered or, or that it has anything to do with the manifesto that, I don't know what, the, the Unabomber or uh, who uh, Engels uh, wrote, <laughs> this is a 1,306-word website. So if she's read part of it, I don't know what prevented her from reading the rest of it. Uh, Honestly, uh, Jason, I haven't read the document in its fulsome, uh, in, in but you its call complete it naive thing. And you're being quite because the pieces of it, of it pieces of it that uh, that uh, I paid attention to are profoundly naive and uh, thoughtless, and uh, and uh, um, quite tone deaf, as I've said before, um, and very ill informed. Uh, so I suspect there are other parts of the document that I also don't agree with. Quite honestly. Um, in terms of the particular issue that you're asking about, though, um, let me be very clear. I think that uh, as much as we can, in an economically responsible way, promote renewable energy development, um, particularly for our own energy needs here in Canada, we should be working on that. And, and it's not enough to cross your fingers and close your eyes and, and hope that it happens. You need to engage in, in uh, thoughtful governance efforts that will promote that kind of development. And so I'm very much in agreement with that. Setting arbitrary standards without thinking about the consequences to the price to consumers, uh, thinking about the, the price to or the consequences to the economy, um, you need to be really considered when you move forward on those things. And uh, so that's my view with respect to that part that you quoted. Okay. Well, here's the other awkward thing for the NDP, because as we've already demonstrated, there, there are clearly Albertans, individuals in Alberta groups in Alberta that support the LEAP Manifesto. I think, I think to some extent, Notley can can take them for granted because they don't have a lot of options in terms of uh, who to vote for, and a lot of them would probably just stick with Notley anyway, uh, vote strategically in that sense. But she's, I, I think she has to be careful about how much she throws them under the bus uh, because if she really and truly repudiates all of this and thereby extension all of them, it, it's possible that they'll go somewhere else. It's possible that they'll get behind a, a different party or start some some splinter left-wing party. And I don't think Rachel Notley wants that. Yeah. Look, the, the Leap Manifesto is a lot more than just keep the oil in the ground. I mean, look, if, if you read this, and, and <clears throat> Premier Notley, I encourage you to just take two minutes today and, and cast a glance at this. It, it will take you almost no time. Uh, if you read the 1,306-word Leap Manifesto, uh, you'll know it starts right at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and that the entire concept behind the document is to establish some new feel-good democratic economy, energy. It, it, this thing is, I swear to you, it's written in uh, fairy dust. Um, and it's, it's not pragmatic and it's not practical. What Rachel Notley should have done yesterday was first of all say, look, I've read this thing. And the idea that a political party could use this as bedrock foundation for a better country is, is absurd, if not just plain ridiculous. 
And that's why she needs to distance herself from the federal NDP. Because we're like, there are a lot of damaging and dangerous and just flat out bad political ideas. And the public deserves to have the people who are in control or who seek control to have the wherewithal to filter them out before they get to, 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 the, to the table where they can be discussed as policy. We don't want bad ideas getting into that room, only good ones. Take this leap manifesto and do what should be done with it. Print it out on paper and burn it to heat something. Well, she, I mean, she can easily make it clear that, yes, look, we, we, we brought in a carbon tax. We, we brought in higher taxes for corporations and uh, high income earners. But I, I think she needs to make it clear that that, that stuff is for uh, the immature political wannabes, that, that uh, she's in the camp where the grownups are, are governing and trying to make tough decisions. And uh, this stuff is, is just silly and not realistic. And she doesn't want any part of it. I think by leaving the door open, by suggesting that you only disagree with part of it, you're just going to keep getting these questions because people want to know, well, wait a second, does that mean you, you do like some of this? Because this is all pretty nonsensical. The notion that maybe you like some of it is, is concerning. And she could have shut the door on all of that yesterday and said, you know what, we don't want any part of any of this. Uh, it's, it's immature nonsense. Uh, we've got a province to govern. We've got tough decisions to make, and we're going to do so in a progressive but pragmatic way. Because that's how she needs to position herself here. All right. If you took a Polaroid snapshot of Canada right now, and you, you shake it, shake it, shake it. When that picture emerges, this is what you would see. You would see the most prominent standing NDP politician saying, we need pipelines. You would see the conservative party that was just tossed out of government saying, we need pipelines. And now you would see the prime minister, the liberal prime minister himself, recognizing that this country badly needs pipelines to get our resources to foreign markets. It's a trifecta. Can it get anything done? Uh, John Iveson from the National Post has the scoop today. We're going to talk to him after the news to 1030. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. The soup today is a corn chowder, creamed corn chowder. Mm. Love that. Uh, the, the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo is dearly upon us, and it's going to be a huge crowd of people dressed all... Uh, gaily and cheerily, I dare say. Uh, I love it. I think it's outstanding. I don't go because you know me, afraid of crowds. But um, if there was, yeah, if there's a crowd uh, that I would most like to be uh, caught up in, it's this one. This is really cool, really fun, and it's like a celebration of nerd culture. Although I, I question whether or not it's nerd culture. I just don't get that. Well, it's funny. I mean, a brief time at at Eau Claire during uh, the the comic convention, you'd you'd see everybody down there in their costumes as they're making their way around downtown. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite something to see, right? It's, it's become a huge event. And obviously, what, it's in San Diego that's like the original the one. Comic-Con, right? yeah. Which is huge. And, and since the kind of nerd culture has really become mainstream, and when you look at uh, the big movies at the box office, I mean, comic books are, are huge. Science fiction is, is huge. Uh, so how and when did this become mainstream? Uh, our next guest uh, explores that question in a new book and sort of uses Batman as as the litmus test here. The book is called The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Glenn Weldon is a book critic for NPR and author of aforementioned book. Glenn, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So how do you quantify or define nerd culture, first of all? Well, I mean, I think the reason I chose Batman as a uh, as a lens to look at nerd culture is is because I think the thing about him that has uh, pervaded the cultural consciousness now is that he is obsessed. 
being a nerd means being obsessed with a thing. It doesn't matter what that thing is. You can be a nerd about superheroes or you can be a nerd about wine or beer or sports. Uh, the idea is that you are rejecting, uh, implicitly rejecting irony, ironic distance, uh, being too cool for school, and really loving a thing with all your heart. All right, that's pretty well put. That's not at all how I was going to define it, but I like yours a lot better because it, it, it's funny that, that we tend to apply the nerd, excuse me, the nerd label to things like comic books and, and science fiction, uh, but less so to wine. If you're if you're a wine nerd, you're more apt to be called a, or more likely to be called a connoisseur or an aficionado. Exactly right. that's, that's that's the culture because the stuff that used to be considered uh, nerd pursuits, superheroes. Uh, science fiction, uh, computers. Well, I mean, computers were there at the edge of culture for many, many years, and we were there with them. We nerds were there with them. But now that computers have moved to the center of a communications culture, uh, they took us along with them. Uh, Lord of the Rings movies make billions of dollars, even when they're not very good. Uh, tele- <laughs> superhero movies make billions of dollars. They are the um, they're the lingua franca today. They're the, they're the common culture that we all share. And I talked to a lot of nerds for this book asking, why now? What happened? What changed? And it depends on who you talk to, of course. I mean, uh, every comic book creator I talked to said, well, now movies can do what comic books have always been able to do. There was this stigma associated with the medium of a comic book. Uh, so now we are telling these same stories in movies where there's not that barrier to entry. And that's why everybody can enjoy them. Uh, but you get a lot of different answers depending on who you ask. But why Batman, though? How does Batman find himself or itself at, at the center of all this? Well, you think about it, uh, he's a dude who keeps a lot of stuff in his basement. Uh, he is not particularly great with people. And uh, he is, again, he is obsessed. He wasn't always that way. Mm-hmm. In the 70s, when they decided they needed to reject everything that the Adam West Batman had brought to the table, uh, Adam West brought a uh, holy priceless collection of Etruscan snoods and careful jump, <laughs> pedestrian safety, all that stuff. Uh, they decided they wanted to go back to Batman's very beginning in 1939 when he was a dark, grim, urban vigilante. Um, He hadn't been that for very long when Robin came along and lightened the tone a lot. But in the 70s, they said we need to uh, make this character somebody that appeals not to kids because kids were no longer reading comics. It was now teens and adults who were reading comics. So they demanded uh, something a little bit chewier, a a guy who uh, had emotions uh, as opposed to uh, the superheroes as they had existed for many, many years. They were just basically cops in capes. They didn't really have personalities to speak of. So they gave Batman an obsessive personality. They kind of borrowed from the era of uh, psychotherapy, and they said, we're going to make this guy so obsessed with stopping crime that it becomes his drive, his central thing. And I would argue that nerds kind of recognize something about obsession. We've got to see ourselves in this character. I kind of wonder about myself. I remember being a Batman reader. Let me let me run this by you and get your assessment here, because I remember being a young Batman reader and just thinking I really liked a couple of things in particular. One was the gadgets, and two mm-hmm. was just how methodical he seemed about things. Like he just sort of seemed to be really efficient, and uh, you know, like he didn't he didn't waste a lot of time, or he would call things as he saw them right away. I never saw him as this like deeply disturbed individual, and I was also really interested in the origins of Batman. But it seemed to me like he would just sort of swoop in like Spider-Man and do the thing that the the human or more human-like authorities couldn't do. 
What's your take yeah, on Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is that's great about these characters is that depending on who's writing them, who's creating them, uh, you can pick up different facets, different aspects of him. And uh, you're exactly right. For, for many years, he, he became the sort of master tactician, uh, the guy who made plans within plans and was always on top of anything. Uh, but, but in the 80s, uh, writers like Frank Miller and some other folks came along to kind of turn him into a psychopath, uh, to make him uh, not just driven, but nuts. Uh, that's true. That's, that's one version of him. There are many different versions of him. Every nerd I talked to said, the reason I like this character is because he is so relatable. I could be Batman, they would tell me, as they uh, shoved some French fries into their face. <laughs> I would tell them, A, you can't. B, uh, in this country, in the United States anyway, we all believe that we could become billionaires if we just try really hard. Uh, that is not necessarily true. Uh, it's not even remotely true. But that there is something none, – none of the nerds I talked to said anything about the fact that Batman does have a superpower, and that's his wealth. His wealth makes everything possible. It turns everything that is patently impossible into the vaguely plausible. It functions in every Batman story pretty much like magic. Uh, but that's not something they notice. It's not something they pick up on because uh, he's their guy, right? He could, they could be Batman. But you, you mentioned Frank Miller. It's the 30th anniversary of, of his, uh, his take on Batman uh, that, that even now today still seems to have a lot of influence. Uh, the Batman mm -hmm. versus Superman movie picked up on, on a lot of that. Uh, how influential do you, do you think that was? It's uh, hard to uh, overestimate uh, how, how influential that was. It changed everything because what he was doing was uh, for many years, after 1970, uh, they made a, a Batman for the comics who was a dark, grim, obsessed loner. But the Batman that existed in the popular culture, outside the comics page, was basically the Adam West Batman, who, who got picked up and was turned into the Super Friends Batman. It was all the same sort of very light uh, comic touches. Uh, if you asked my Aunt Faye in 1978 who Batman was, she would say Adam West. Mm -hmm. What Frank Miller did was he said, I'm going to write this book not to engage Batman the character who exists on the comic book page, but Batman the idea. I'm going to update Batman the idea. I'm going to show what would happen if Adam West Batman came back and uh, saw that the world no longer functions the way he, it used to in the 60s, and that all of his tricks of the trade no longer work because the world has gotten so much darker and more violent. He didn't care about the nerds. He knew that they would read it because it had Batman in it. He was pitching. He was like Babe Ruth going up to the plate and pointing over the wall and saying, I'm going to go after uh, the normals out there who don't think about Batman at all. And if they do, they think it's Adam West. And that's what he fused these two ideas together uh, and brought them both to the table. And that's exactly why he ha his influence is still being felt. Yeah, and I guess that's maybe why um, why Batman's been able to skyrocket a little bit in, in all of this in, in terms of uh, popularity. Anyway, the, the thing that's always struck me about Batman is that my my version of him is very different than than. Uh, I think even the contemporary version, like the the Dark Knight films, these recent films, and I haven't seen Superman versus Batman yet, but these aren't films that I've enjoyed just because they're so different than the Batman that I grew up with. So I, I wonder if you think that these different iterations of Batman over time, or interpretations, I guess I should say, of Batman over time, kind of uh, muddy the water a little bit about who this icon is, or if it helps. No, I think it helps. I think it helps. Uh, the idea is that these characters exist at a pre-verbal level. They are, they are elemental. They are symbols. And uh, the more diverse the audience, the more diverse the portrayals, the better it is. The, these stories get better. These characters get better if they reflect a host of different people's values, not just one set of pre people's values. Uh, if 
you can have the card-carrying uh, Adam West Batusi Batman, and you can have the Christian Bale Batman. And now, because what he does, you see, is he cycles from light to dark over the years. He's, he's done it at least twice, and he'll, he's doing it right now. We are now at the peak grim and gritty. Uh, you can't get darker and less joyful than the Zack Snyder Batman. Um, but at the same time, when I saw the Zack Snyder Batman, there was a preview for the Lego movie Batman, which is uh, Will Arnett playing Batman, a Lego version of Batman, as just a self-important, uh, self-serious tool. And I think there's room for that. This, this wheel keeps turning, and there's different variations, and, and uh, there's a Batman for every age. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that, because I've heard it said that George Clooney's Batman was the absolute lowest of low. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's it. That's the comic turn. Uh, he went from light with the uh, Batman television series in the, in the 60s to dark in the 70s to really dark with the Dark Knight Returns and then the Batman, the Tim Burton Batman films. But then you go back, the, the cycle turns again, and you get a very silly, campy, nipple suit Batman because uh, <laughs> yeah. Joel Schumacher is who he is. And the wheel turns again. Uh, there was a, a wonderful series uh, on, on Comedy Central down here, on, I'm sorry, on Cartoon Network down here called Batman the Brave and the Bold, which kind of fused uh, the classic Batman with a lot of bat, the Batman with a sense of humor. It's, it's part of this character, and it's the, the more it is and the more varied we can make him, uh, the better and longer lasting he'll be. Well, here's what's funny, then, because, of course, in the 60s it gets campy with Adam West, and so that Batman has Robin. When, when things get campy again in the 90s, Robin's there again. So where does Robin fit in? And this is something you, you explore in the book, even some of the, the weird kind of, shall we say, gay overtones that have, that have been there. Yeah, sure. I mean, you add Robin to uh, Batman, and you basically complete his story because uh, he is dedicated. He he has this oath that he swore uh, to keep what happened to him from happening to anybody else. So you give him uh, somebody that he is protecting, somebody he he is ostensibly being a father figure for. Now, when you do that, you have two dudes doing the same job, living in the same house, uh, and, and in some panels in the 50s and 60s, sleeping in the same bed, and you get these gay this gay subtext, which is part of the character. It's there. And all Joel Schumacher did, uh, and to a lesser extent the Batman television series did, was just turn that volume up to 11. Uh, it's, it's there... Uh, but again, when people go and they, they need to make him dark, when you, you turn the cycle from light to dark, light to dark, the first thing you do is you get rid of Robin. You send him off to college. You uh, kill him, in, <laughs> they did in the, in, in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and, and he goes back to being a dark, grim loner. But Robin always comes back because Robin is half the story. Yeah, I missed that whole gay overtones thing. Maybe just my head wasn't there when I was a young kid. <laughs> they were doing gymnastics <laughs> well, no, together, the, and I was like, yeah, in, that's cool. In the, in the 50s, uh, there was a guy by the name of Frederick Wortham who was an anti-comics crusader, and he said a lot of things. He said that woman, Wonder Woman was uh, had lesbian overtones. He said that Superman was a fascist. He said that the crime comics were too violent. He kind of had a point about the crime comics. They were crazy. Right. And he said that... Watching, seeing these two men in a uh, in a house with beautiful flowers and large vases, and Bruce Wayne swanning about in a dressing gown, will make kids think they might be gay. And as I say in the book, he had a point. He just didn't realize what point he had. I mean, no straight kid is going to be looking at that thinking anything except. Um, let, let's let's have them fight crime already. But I would argue that pretty much every gay kid, I certainly thought um, as a gay kid uh, that there was something going on there, or at least there was something I couldn't quite put my finger on. Right. But that's the way subtext works. It's well, not intentional, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's that, it doesn't matter whether it's intentional. Okay, it's were, were the writers oblivious to it, or were the writers having some fun to see how far they could push it, and how whether uh, other people would know it? 
pretty much to a man, and, and these are mostly men, uh, when, you, when you ask them that question, pretty much every creator has been asked this question. Uh, they say, absolutely not. I don't know where it came from. But I'll tell you where it came from. It's because comics are a unique medium. Uh, comics uh, have images that go along with the words. They're literally subtextual. And uh, the, the, the text could be telling us something, but uh, if... If gay people like me don't see ourselves reflected in media, we look deeper. And especially with uh, with with comic book panels, we can see things in body language and background detail. We can see things and make connections that aren't intended to be there, but are there. When you right. have a panel of Batman and Robin lying together naked under sun lamps, it's supposed to be perfectly innocent, but it uh, has a it has a, a charge. That uh, wasn't put there intentionally, but it is there nonetheless. Why would they be tanning? That doesn't make sense. It's the 50s. Hey, didn't, didn't know. Didn't, uh, by the way, didn't, uh, uh, oh, one of the, who am I, Kevin Smith address this in one of his movies too? Where, where one of his yeah, characters. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in one of the. Uh, Chasing Amy, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah, trying yeah, to make yeah. the argument that they're totally gay, the two of them. Uh, anyway, uh, so bring this back to nerd culture for me here because it seems to me that nerd culture is now just mainstream culture. Is that the case? That's exactly the case. And that's what I'm trying. I'm writing a piece now trying to figure out what happens to nerd culture once it becomes the culture. Are we raising a generation of kids who can do things that I was ashamed of doing because I didn't want to be labeled a nerd, who can play D&D, who can play computer games, who can uh, be really into Lord of the Rings uh, and and not feel any kind of shame or feel like they're being uh, oppressed? And if that's the case then are, are they nerds at all? Can you be a nerd without feeling like you were, without being shoved in a locker at any point in your life? Right. Well, uh, you know, I, these kids today, I, my nephew was basically saying, um, yeah, yeah, I'm a total nerd. I loved, uh, I loved the Avengers. Well, it's the number one making, yeah. you know, movie of all time. So, I mean... <laughs> well, that was the problem with, like, Nirvana being called alternative music. It's the number one album. <laughs> What's alternative about it? Exactly, exactly. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with now. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I, I would love it if uh, nerds could become nerds without feeling objectified. Well, I'm sorry, feeling oppressed. Because if that's the case, then they're not going to feel resentful. And as much as nerd culture is great... Uh, because it is about passion. It is about unalloyed joy. Uh, that passion tends to uh, overwhelm things like nuance and subtlety and pushes everything to either end of, a, of a, an extreme. So my thing is the best. Your thing is the worst. It can become toxic very easily uh, because, again, it, it, when, it's, when this passion is about sharing things and saying, I found this thing, I wanted to show it to you, then that's great. But when it becomes about hoarding something and saying, I like this thing and I like it better more strongly than you do or you don't like it in the right way, that's, that's where it gets toxic and that's where it gets um, uh, silly. And maybe if, we're raising a, if we raise a healthier generation, we don't necessarily need to nurture that feeling in them. We're going to show like the Big Bang Theory where, you know, they have nerds front and center and they love comic books and Dungeons and Dragons and video games, etc. Is, is that a show that's helped cause that shift or is that more of a, a consequence of the shift? I think it's more a consequence of the shift. I mean, it is, uh, you know, I, I don't watch it myself because the jokes seem very broad, kind of um, uh, like they're like they're. They're drafting off of this idea of nerd culture, like a, like it's, they're riding behind a giant truck, and they're just being pulled along with it. Um, yeah, it's and it is you know the number one show on television right now, so that tells you something about where we are. Well, the book is called The Caped Crusade: Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Glenn, it's been great talking to you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was fun. There you go.
Glenn Weldon, cool. The Caped Crusade is the uh, name of the book. I, 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 yeah, I'm partial to this psychopath Batman personally. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, that's going to do it for us today. We have a very special programming coming up for you. Adapting in Alberta, uh, beginning at 1230 in the spot where you would normally hear Daniel Smith today, a familiar face, a friend of ours and yours, Dave Taylor, what? will be uh, sitting in with a special oh, report, Adapting in Alberta. Uh, and then uh, Daniel Smith will be back. But uh, Dave Some, is kicking off uh, yes. a series that we're going to be following on this particular radio station. On our show, in fact, right across uh, on all our shows, we're going to be covering this over the next few weeks. So I think a very important uh, subject, given what's going on in Alberta right now. Daniel Smith, uh, by the way, is going to be in Edmonton for the budget on Thursday. But that's it for us. Kincaid and Breckenridge, back with you tomorrow morning at 9.30. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 9.30 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.